the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello, Happy New Year and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And Brexit may be imminent, but there is still much to discuss, much to learn, much to find out, as you will discover in the course of this conversation, in which I was joined by two of the UK and Changing Europe's top bods, uh, Professor Tim Bale, the Deputy Director of UK and Changing Europe, and Professor Meg Russell, Senior Fellow of UK and Changing Europe, and also uh, top person at the Constitution Unit at University College London. We discussed all the things to look out for in the next 12 months and beyond. So yeah, little more to say than uh, listen to the chat. Here it is. Let's talk about Brexit. Happy New Year 2020. Uh, it's done. So should we just talk about Harry and Meghan? Uh, <laughs> you seen the new Star Wars film? Do you like that? Um, I mean, really... What has changed since the end of last year? Uh, the makeup of Parliament. And what does that mean? Uh, it means that um, all of the kind of House of Commons chaos and arguments and uncertainty that we saw for the last couple of years, particularly you know increasingly in the run-up to the various Brexit deadlines, which kept moving, um, that's all over. Um, the House of Commons is going to be fairly easy to manage for the government, although maybe not as easy as they like to think once people have settled into their new roles. Um, we're going to start hearing a little bit more about the House of Lords than we did before, but they've got a much, much easier time in Parliament now. As evidenced by the fact that the withdrawal agreement bill sailed through common, the Commons. You know, what, what was the last two, three years all about then? Well, it was... Um, after the 2017 election, um, as uh, Meg well knows about a minority government, and of course it's always much harder uh, to get what you want uh, as a minority government compared to you know, the stonking majority that the government have got now, so that was part of the story. Um, it was about, as well, that minority government being, as it were, held to ransom, some would say, by the DUP until it wasn't, <laughs> and Boris Johnson decided... Uh, and and uh, more importantly, I would say held to ransom by the ERG, hmm. that's uh, right. who yeah. won in the end. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. Uh, it's certainly the case that internal factions and political parties, you know, have much greater leverage over uh, any government when that government either has a very small majority or no majority yeah, at all. She she held the Theresa May. She Remember um, her? <laughs> yeah. Um, called the early twenty seventeen general election, didn't she, in order to increase her majority. Because, fundamentally, and this is something I'm rather critical of, that um, she never articulated where her biggest problem was. Her biggest problem was on her own backbenches. She knew she was going to have difficulty with the hard Brexiteers, and that's essentially why she called the election. Although she never said so, she blamed it on Labour for being intransigent, but... You know, it's not the opposition's job to support the government. It's government backbenchers' job to support the government. She knew she was going to have trouble with them. She called that election. It was a disastrous decision, retrospectively, because she lost her majority. And it was a battle 
but within the Conservative Party, essentially, I would say. I mean, Tim, you mm. you write about parties. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I think it is worth bringing up Theresa May because, of course, this really flows from the decision you know that she announced in her Lancaster House speech um, after uh, the referendum that she was going to go for what we used to call back then a hard Brexit, mm. uh, which was you know uh, that this country would leave the single market and leave the customs union. Uh, and as a result of that, she couldn't reach across uh, the aisle, as the Americans say, and, and get support from Labour or the Liberal Democrats for any kind of Brexit. Whereas it may unless have been... she softened her position, yes. which she wasn't prepared to no, do. No, she wasn't prepared to do. I mean, you know, so you can argue that it was an opportunity missed in some senses by, you know, soft Brexit supporters on both sides. Yeah. As a, I don't know if I'm the as a history graduate in the room. Does the result of last year's election make the past clearer? In the sense that you mentioned the 2017 election. Surely what the 2019 election shows is that that was the correct decision to try and get a bigger majority to make stuff happen, except it was executed incredibly badly. Is that fair? Um, Because that's what Johnson's basically done. He's had the election, got the majority, and now he can get crap on. Mm. Well, that's true. But I think, I mean, going back to your question about it, it, it racing through... Uh, why did the bill go through the Commons so quickly? Um, you know, it's sort of like you would say, it didn't even touch the sides. Um, mm. uh, two, two reasons for that. One, obviously, the deadline is looming. You know, I mean, if, unless, we're gonna, unless we were going to go for another Article 50 extension, which there's no way he was going to do, <laughs> yeah. you know, it had to be done by the 31st of January, and therefore there's a certain, you know, it needed to get through the Commons so that it could get through the Lords. Also, he'd had this sort of macho um, posture... Uh, before, in the end, the election got called, that he wanted it to get through the Commons in three days. Mm, Um, He lost on a vote on the timetable. He actually, the second reading of the bill, in principle, was agreed. He then lost a motion to get it through the Commons in three days. He couldn't very well then come back and say, oh, well, you know what, we've won the election now, have 15 days, even if there had been 15 days left. And I would say getting a bill through the Commons... In principle, this is not a political point of any kind. Getting a big, complex bill through the Commons in three days is a very bad idea. Legislate at haste, repent at leisure. If you're the government, Parliament is not your enemy. Parliament ought to be your friend. Parliament is where you explain what it is you want to do and subject it to scrutiny, not just from parliamentarians, but from interest groups, from the media. People can point out things that might not work. You can think again. You know, it ought to be... A constructive discussion. You could have a very constructive discussion with a majority of 80 in the House of Commons. You know, you're primarily talking to your backbenchers. Mm. The, ris- the risk is that if things go through too quickly, the government falls on its face. And uh, I think that may happen if they are too kind of macho about pushing everything through and not listening to Parliament. So it doesn't make the past clearer, it makes the future clearer because Johnson's turned up with his bill and his pliant party just straight through the Commons, um, and that's how it's going to be from now on, right, yeah. Tim? I'm sorry, the one that I, I, you, you putting that question again makes me realise I strayed very much away from the question. If Theresa May had won a comfortable majority in 2017, yeah. we would not have seen a bill being rushed through in three days. Yeah. That was my point. You know, mm-hmm. if, she, if she had got the majority then, yes, she probably would have got Brexit through. Yes, the ERG might not have been such a problem for her, but probably we would have had time to think this through a bit more carefully than is currently happening. And thinking things through this quickly is a bit dangerous. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think 
the idea that everything is going to be plain sailing for the government in Parliament and, and more generally you know, has to be questioned to some extent. Um, it remains the case, obviously, that Boris Johnson is going to have to do uh, a deal with Brussels on the future uh, relationship and uh, he will have to, he says, um, get this uh, free trade agreement basically kind of done and dusted by the middle of the year in order for it to end transition at the end of the year. Now, there is possibility there that the deal with the uh, EU will be you know, too soft for the ERG and for the Spartans, who may then begin to kick up again. Uh, and they may be joined by some of the new intake. It's often said that this new intake will provide Boris Johnson with a cushion against um, you know, the Brexiteer ultras, but quite a few of that new intake might be Brexiteer ultras themselves. Now, I'm not saying that there are you know, 40 odd of them uh, and therefore, you know, the government will be losing votes left, right and centre in the way that it was over the last, um, you know, certainly two years or so. But I certainly think there is, you know, a management problem there that the government is going to have to think about. Now, clearly, you know, there's a, there'll be an element of gratitude towards Boris Johnson mm. among a lot of those people who've made it into Parliament or back into Parliament. Uh, but as is often said, gratitude is the most perishable quantity <laughs> in, in politics. Um Obviously, Boris Johnson is going to be able to use patronage in order to be able to buy off some of that vote. But, of course, you know, if you appoint some people to, you know, become undersecretary for paperclips, that means you don't appoint other people to become undersecretary for paperclips. And some people will feel resentful for being passed over and therefore may not be as cooperative. And as with a majority of 80, you've got a lot of backbenchers. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. So in some There's ways... There's a lot of people kicking yeah. around the place yeah, yeah. and you can't please them all. No, yeah. no. I, I, so, I mean, I, I'm not so sure that I buy the idea that, you know, everything will be fine and, and we're going back to the sort of, you know, 2005 days where, you know, there was a government with a big majority and it didn't have to worry too much uh, about backbench uh, management and, and rebellions. And the risks are, I think, I mean, this is this is slightly to make the same point that I just made in, in a different way. I mean, if you look at the bill and what changed in the new version of the bill that was published post-election compared mm. to the, the, mm. the previous one that he got his second reading for before the election, they've taken out a lot of the requirements for parliamentary scrutiny of the next stages. So previously they were required to get their negotiating objectives approved by Parliament before beginning the next stage of negotiations. They've taken that out, and you have to think, well, why would you take that out? Because they were going to get them approved in the House of Commons with this majority. So what difference does it make? Essentially it means that they can get away with going into the negotiations without even having thought through properly what their negotiating objectives are. There's a parallel here, I think, with teaching, isn't there? Mm. People say you don't really understand a subject until you've had to stand up in front of a classroom and teach it. Standing up in front of the House of Commons and saying this is what we're doing makes you think it through. Mm. So I think they're damaging themselves by stripping out parliamentary scrutiny to this extent. Because it, maybe they get halfway through the negotiations, they realise they haven't even really agreed amongst themselves yeah, what it is. Yeah, that and, I, and I, mean, I think the other problem uh, you know, that there will be for parliamentary scrutiny is the weakness of the opposition. I mean, that might yeah. be a temporary <laughs> thing, but of course Labour is going to be consumed until early April with its leadership contest. Uh, and I really don't think it's going to be up to the job of, of holding the government to account on, on anything, let alone this. That's why you take out the parliamentary scrutiny bits, because... Leave's out of the way, you've got a nice clear run for three months, why bother? Just get on with it. Well the point is just having to articulate what it is you're doing 
you know, when you when you you write a speech or a lecture mm. or something, just having to set it out makes you think through what exactly it is that you're trying to say. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have to face parliamentary scrutiny, if you don't, you know, I mean, Boris Johnson was a bit notorious during the election campaign for also hiding from media scrutiny. You know, mm -hmm. if you don't appear in public and defend your case, you may not have a very good case. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, mm -hmm. that level of yeah. daylight on what you're doing is actually healthy. Oh, Meg, you're so old-fashioned, aren't you? We've got <laughs> Dominic Cummings now. He just reads it. He'll he'll do all the scrutiny because he's super clever. Don't need to worry about Parliament. He'll just read the, whatever like, and write Bismarck on it, and then it'll be amazing. Mm. That's that's where we are now, right? Mm. That's, well, that's... people who think they know better than everybody else <laughs> are dangerous, <laughs> and sometimes they come a cropper. Hi, Arnand here. Sorry to butt in, but I just wanted to say, if you like this podcast, which I'm sure you do, then please rate it wherever you get your podcasts from. You'll be doing a public service because it makes it easier for others to find us. While you're at it, go to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk and sign up for our fantastic newsletter. Not only the latest on Brexit, but the latest on the best football team in the world. Every two weeks, free, in your inbox. Do it now. OK, so we're, we're, we're looking towards 2020 now and what we need to look out for, which obviously negotiations. Yes, all right, the rest of 2020. It's not long in 2020. It feels like it's been gone on forever. It's only two weeks old. So what should we be looking out for in 2020? You know, the first thing you mentioned there was the reshuffle. Is that the first thing we should be looking out for? Or is it Brexit Day itself? Does, some, does that signify something? Should we be looking out for anything actually happening on the 31st of January that really matters beyond, you know, symbolic lowering of flags and... Possibly ringing the bells on Big Ben. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think that is a symbolic date, obviously, but it does mean, you know, presumably the government is going to kind of change gear uh, yeah. and really start negotiating. We've got to reshuffle hard. immediately after yeah. Brexit. Day, we're we're going to be forbidden from talking about Brexit anymore, aren't we? That's, that's right. part of the plan. That's a bad word. I'm not sure that's going to work. But... Uh, I think a lot of people will be looking at the reshuffle to see what kind of Tory government this would be. And of course, we'd have a lot of talk about, you know, this. Um, going to be a very different kind of conservative government from the you know the kind of austerity governments that we've seen since 2010 you know apparently we might see this with the budget which comes slightly of course uh, budget in March yeah. this this year and, and some other thing um you know we, we might see a government who will turn the spending taps on uh, we might see a government you know that is uh, as some people like to characterize it a kind of one nation conservative government rather than a government committed to a smaller state um, so I think people, when they look at the reshuffle, will be looking at the kind of people who are appointed and saying, uh, are these the kind of people you would expect to see in that kind of Tory government? Or are they going to be, you know, fairly kind of run-of-the-mill Thatcherite Tories uh, who don't really buy this idea that some people are putting about that, you know, Boris Johnson is going to kind of return almost to the 1950s, if you like. So we've got a reshuffle in February, uh, we think. Uh, we've definitely got a budget in March. Next big thing after that, I suggest, is this July deadline, mm. which mm. can somebody explain to me what that is? Essentially, we, we have this transition, which is due to end uh, at the end of 2020. Um, but we need to know uh, where we're going by a deadline of the end of June. Um, so what, what do you mean we need to know where we're going? What well, needs to be agreed? Basically, the outline or even some of the detail of a free trade relationship with the uh, EU. Like what? Like what level tariffs they're going to be at, what, whether it's well, going to involve services, whether, um, you know, whether BMWs are going to get some special dispensation because the car makers of Germany are suddenly going to actually finally turn up and yeah, have their the, say, or the, is the, it that level of detail? Or yeah, is it, the, the scope, 
uh, and and the range of the of the free trade agreement. Absolutely. So you know, will it will it completely exclude services? Will it exclude some goods and include other goods? Um, you know, those kinds of things. Um, if we are to have tariffs, you know, what levels will they be? Um, and it won't just be about trade. Actually, there's also other aspects of the relationship with the EU. So you know, the the, the security relationship, for example, that will need to be uh, in there. There is there are all sorts of aspects that need to be there. Um, you know, what will our immigration um, regime be? Well, it's going to be an Australian-based point system, Tim. Yeah, come sorry, on. I mean, sorry. You, you haven't been paying attention. No. That might need fleshing out. <laughs> and interestingly, I mean, you know, coming back to, to something Meg was talking about, um, and, and perhaps she could say something about this, there will be people who've been paying attention who remember at the end of the year there were a whole load of other bills going through that were mm. supposedly essential um, to us leaving the this European Union, the immigration and, bill, yeah, yeah, and exactly, trade, trade yeah, bill. yeah okay. and, it, and, it, and and they haven't happened or haven't happened yet. I don't. Think that... They're promised. Yeah. Those, are, those bills were pretty much reproduced in the Queen's speech, yeah. the previous Queen's speech. But an obvious nerdy question is: is why were they thought to be necessary um, to be passed before we? left and now it seems it's okay to pass them after we <laughs> well because we're still in the transition period and not much changes until the end of the transition okay. period so, so they're never absolutely vital i think oh you're testing me now uh, you need jill <laughs> rutter on this one but yeah. i think um some of them were needed if we were heading for a no deal right. in the sort of original sense right. of no deal right. but with the transition period then nothing dramatic happens until mm. the end of transition and so mm. we've got a bit more time but one of the questions with respect I think to this you know middle of the year mm. um, the, the, it's the end of June isn't it by which mm. there has to be a decision as to whether the transition period really will end at the end of December or whether they need more time and one of the bizarrest things I think that uh, Boris Johnson chose to do was the, the original version of the bill had him needing parliamentary approval for an extension to that period. Um, fair enough. Um, you might expect that he would take that requirement out um, uh-huh. to make his life easier so that he could decide so he didn't have to turn up at Parliament and say, can I have the extension or not? He didn't just take it out. He put in a new clause saying that he's not allowed to seek an extension. So in a world where his hands are, you know, he, has, he potentially had more freedom than before. He's actually tied his own hands so that it's going to become illegal for him to agree an extension unless he comes back and um, brings more legislation. So that's a kind of a very, that's very much a signal to the Brexiteers. I think it's also a signal to the Europeans that he wants it done quickly. But, you know, since when did that work, that the UK dictates to the Europeans how quickly the negotiations are going to go? That didn't go so well with Theresa May. So... That will be an awkward moment if it turns out that he does need to ask Parliament to agree for him to ask for more time, yeah, which he absolutely he didn't have to. He didn't have to have that problem at all. And those people that Tim's talking about, you know, the, the Spartans, etc., they wouldn't like that. And he didn't have to take that risk. Well, it's because he's not going to have an extension, right? That's what he says. Is that what do we think? Is that actually going to happen, or is he going to have to have an extension? Well, I think there are ways of fudging an extension. Mm. I mean, I, I think you know, you, you may have heard people talk about the possibility of doing some bare bones, quote unquote, agreement mm. uh, with uh, the European Union that can then be fleshed out over the coming months and years, and that that might be a way of getting an extension that isn't called an extension, but is in fact an extension. Right, but hang on, these fleshed out these these bare bones agreements. I can't remember who it was we had on. <laughs> sometime last year who pointed out that these bare bones mini deals etc are actually just the eu said 
marketing what well, you're going to do what we do and then maybe we'll discuss fleshing fleshing yeah, out what I mean, we've maybe done with down the line but essentially what a, a bare bones deal is <clears throat> the EU saying well here's what's on the table here's what we do but I there's a pres- the same, there's right? a precedent for that which is the border down the Irish Sea which oh, apparently wow. was you know well, something that the UK government would never agree to and then when it came to it Boris Johnson um, you know conceded that point yeah and isn't that why there will be a deal before next December if it comes to it the, the precedent is that he will just fold essentially but that might mean a closer relationship and than that he's promised or that his backbenchers want and then Parliament begins to get interesting, even if he doesn't need parliamentary approval for it. The Conservative backbenchers get restive and mm. his premiership is looking less comfortable than it was before. Does it boil down to, uh, just sort of right back to, we're talking about sort of December 2020, to go back to December 2019, does it boil down to how much those elected in December 2019, how much they were on a Boris ticket and how much they were on a Brexit ticket, essentially? Is that what we're actually talking about here? I think it also depends. I mean, you know, the people who write about prime ministers talk about uh, the extent to which they they have kind of resources. They have, you Mm. know, political capital that they Mm. can spend. I think it depends on things which are well beyond Brexit, doesn't it? All of the stuff that Tim was talking Mm. about in terms of the other policies, you know, they want to hold on to those new Labour seats that they they took at the election. Um, He's going to have to defend himself on a whole lot of policies... Um, in front of the cameras, in front of, you know, the House of Commons Liaison Committee is going to be interesting when that happens because he has been hiding from scrutiny quite a lot and he is capable of, he's capable of being um, very charismatic and charming but he's also capable of saying some quite silly things sometimes. Mm. sometimes. So what happens with his personal popularity across the next year or so governs, I think, very much the mood in the parliamentary party and how easy a time he has in parliament so if he's riding high he's doing well with the public if it looks like you know they're on course to hold on to those seats great he's got an easy time but if he starts messing up or stuff starts going wrong in in, in, in the economy and the handling of international crises it could be anything Mm. then it then it gets sticky yeah and i mean it, it has to be said he does have a cushion not only in parliament but with the public i mean he is in the classic honeymoon phase Mm. i mean there was a poll out i think today or yesterday which said that you know the conservatives now have a lead over labor of i think 17 points instead of 11 points Mm. that they had at the uh election so he's got a, a you know a fairly good cushion there he can he can afford to to lose some support but as Meg said you know, it's events dear boy events uh, to some extent that will depend on what happens with Labour won't it because yeah. you know you say honeymoon well Gordon Brown had a honeymoon that didn't last long Theresa May had a honeymoon that didn't last long <laughs> yeah. you know honeymoons don't necessarily last and if Labour elects yeah. a leader yeah. who can really take him on yeah. if Labour if there's a sense of um, I'm struggling to not say momentum you know there's a struggling of <laughs> a, a, a sense of excitement <laughs> building up about the Labour contest and that's beginning to inspire people mm. you know that that changes the terms doesn't mm. it once mm. we have the leader in place yeah. we'll have a much better sense of how the rest of the year is going to yeah, and, and I mean, it has to be said about Boris Johnson, and Meg's already alluded to this, he is not a great parliamentary performer. Uh, and you know, if Labour does elect a leader who is actually capable of, quote-unquote, taking him apart in Parliament, that that's going to be quite difficult for him, I think. I mean, he's not faced really any serious challenge, has he? Because he's been facing Jeremy Corbyn across the dispatch box in as much as he's turned up in Parliament uh, at all. I mean, uh, you know, having someone of the 
people might say sort of forensic caliber or something like Keir Starmer or the kind of charisma you know Jess Phillips or whatever is going to be a different prospect for him yeah but nobody watches BBC Parliament anymore no, last year. no they don't that, the old WAB went through and nobody was watching no, I remember no. last year when the WAB was going forward everyone on Twitter going are oh, you watching BBC Parliament yeah. isn't Mark Darcy brilliant and all that <laughs> yeah. January oh it just passed but they do watch the sort of one or two minute snatches of PMQs that play on the six o'clock and, and ten the journalists news. are paying attention and I, help it, I think it helps to sort of set the tone set yeah. the mood and it does set the mood for your parliamentary party I mean as yeah. maybe we'll know you know the people behind mm. you know when you're doing badly and it shows it begins to sort of erode the, their confidence in you um, I'm not predicting Which, any of this will happen but I think people who think that 87 majority no problem he's a charismatic leader I, I think they need to be very careful because coming back to something Meg said and, and you were agreeing you know politics has speeded up massively mm. Mm. which is years. not to say that we're not almost certainly heading for a sort of four and a half year parliament, although yeah. they want to they want to repeal the fixed term parliament act, yes. which is a whole other question. So that he might want to hold an election early if he can do that, which yeah. is easier. So new boundaries done. as well. But what possibly. we're not going to see is you know a, a, a tranche of conservative backbenchers going over to Keir Starmer or Jess Phillips or or, <laughs> or Rebecca Long Bailey's Labour Party. So you know we're not going back to those uncertain tumultuous times, mm. but it just might not be a total breeze. I think. Mm. Uh, obviously, the Fixed Term Parliaments Act is basically a swear word on this podcast, but we should do a whole special on yeah. repealing Fixed Term Parliaments because it's really weird, isn't it? You can't just repeal it. You've got to introduce something else and you've got to get the Queen involved and all this sort of stuff. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah, well, <laughs> that would be, be the wonkiest podcast ever. Is there anything else we should be looking out for in 2020 that I have that we've not uh, touched on yet? Well, I mean, there are the fundamental questions about the kind of realignment of, you know, um, the party system in this country. You know, does the fact that the Tories have broken through Labour's quote-unquote red wall, I keep saying quote-unquote, sorry, um, you know, is that a permanent change? Uh, have they lent their votes to Boris Johnson or have those votes, you know, become, you know, um, sort of the, the new normal, as it were? Um, that's something, I think, to look out for. Or can Labour kind of, you know, grab them back and be seen to be... Um, grabbing back some some popularity in those areas, I think that's a very you know a fundamental point. Um, you know, is there any future for the kind of third party in British politics because they failed yet again to break through when it seemed like uh, you know a lot of the conditions were in their favour? We're talking about the Liberal Democrats there, in case people have. Uh, for yeah, watch. You love the Scots good uh, third party. Well, exactly. exactly. You, you said British politics. Yeah, I, I heard it. Just yeah. so others like to jump on these things. Yeah, um, um, and and obviously the other. Um, Thing we'll be looking out for is, is Northern Ireland, both in terms of you know whether Stormont you know, can actually you know now it's got going again, keep going, and whether the money that the government has provided for Northern Ireland is going to be enough to sort out you know some of the serious um, problems there, whether the you know the the sort of the tide is going out on you know the Democratic Unionists and, and even Sinn Fein perhaps, and you know we're seeing a more kind of you know centrist. Uh, politics emerged there. I think those will be interesting things to 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 look at as well. And then, of course, there's this whole question, not to get too sort of wonky and nerdy about um, you know uh, trade between um, the, the uh, you know the um, Great Britain and, and Northern Ireland. Is that going to be frictionless or is it okay. not going to be frictionless? Mm. And those that's that's an example of one of the questions which Boris Johnson was very slippery on during the election campaign, which 
there will come a moment when that actually has to be answered. You know, are there going to be checks? What is the nature of the checks going to be? Because uh, come potentially the end of this year, it's going to be a reality one way or the other. Mm. Yeah. And it's a reality that could make a difference, you know, between some people's firms surviving and, and some people's firms not surviving, and some people's jobs being there and some people's jobs going. So it will be tangible. Um, and, you know, the, the whole question about the, the, the free trade agreement with, with the EU, again, will be quite tangible to some people because if we mm. don't get an agreement for which, for example, supports just-in-time manufacturing from the automotive industry, you know, some factories may close. Uh, and that, uh, that is not going to look good for a government that is committed, um, you know, to helping people in the West Midlands and helping people in the North. Quote, unquote, I think you've just invented a new feature there. Uh, because, as Meg mentioned, Brexit is no longer a word uh, as of next month. Uh, it doesn't exist. Uh, which, you know, to be fair, is true because Britain will have exited. What's this podcast called again? Uh, well, yeah, all right. Uh, yeah, back to think about that. And, yeah, all right, fair point. Um, um, what is, what's going to be the word of 2020? Well, I'm afraid it probably will be free trade agreement. I know you don't want me to, Fair enough. <laughs> to no, say no. that, but I think it, it's not a word, FTA. it's a phrase. FTA. It'll be a lot of FTA yeah. talk. Fair enough. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Right, let's finish with recommendations. We're still doing that. We're still doing that feature for now uh, because there's still lots to understand, mm. even if Brexit is kind it's... of done. So, yeah, again, until kind we think of... Kind of done. Hmm. Well, because right now it's not hmm. as we sit here, but it will be done in two weeks. Well, that depends. What, that, that depends on your definition of done. It'll be it? done. Britain will have exited. Britain will have exited, but so there will Brexit. still be a lot Brexit. going on as we've been discussing. Yeah, but Brexit will have done. I, I'm, I'm going to be. I'm going to become a Brexit fundamentalist on the basis that Britain will have exited. Well, I think there will be a legal separation, but I don't think the divorce really happens until the end of the year, right? At least. Yeah. All right, I'll think about this for the next episode. We will have walked out the door, <laughs> but there'll still be. We'll have one paper cup with a bit of string, and they'll still have a paper cup with a bit of string, and it will go under the door into the into Brussels. And or our LPs will still be on their shelves, and uh, somebody's got to sort LPs. all that out. Uh, you're so cool. <laughs> LPs are really cool. I mean, uh, is, you're, you're so trendy. Um, you know, there was a time a few years ago, I'd be like, LPs, you're terribly old fashioned, but that's like the thing now, isn't it? Uh, my nephew got a record player for his Christmas. I was like, my God, that was that was me 30 years ago. I thought that was terribly out of fashion. Anyway, let's not talk, unless anybody's got an LP to recommend to understand Brexit. Oh, that's a, that's a challenge. Right, that might be this week's competition. Uh, okay, yes, recommendations for understanding where we are now, where we're going, what have you got for me? Well, I, uh, in keeping with me banging on about trade, I'm going to recommend uh, a uh, organisation run out of the University of Sussex, actually, where I used to teach, called the UK um, Trading Policy Observatory, UK TPO, uh, which runs events, which runs blogs, uh, and has kind of expert commentary on um, Britain's trading relationship with Europe, among other things. So, mm-hmm. if, if you want to understand what's going on, UK TPO. Is a good place to find out. Meg, what you got? Well, that was a good one. Um, I think my one's a bit more predictable. And indeed, you may even have had it before. Has anybody recommended um, Anthony Seldon's book on Theresa May's premiership? No, not yet. Because, you know, slot. she was still prime minister so... six months ago. <laughs> Bizarre. <laughs> genuinely. So that's one months. of the... It's, it's a big fat book and it's one of the things that I read over Christmas. Mm. And if you want to understand not the future, as Tim is talking about with trade, but what the past and, and what happened and why it happened... Um, that book is a recommended read although I must say you know, with, no, I don't mean this in any way as a criticism of Anthony Seldon my goodness it's a dismal tale 
of people walking into disaster, you know. And I, as a person who specialises in Parliament, I would say their utter inability to comprehend that being a minority government would mean that they couldn't get whatever they want through Parliament. It's just tragic. Tragedy to end the first podcast of 2020. But I'm sure you'd agree it was an interesting and enlightening chat. It is going to be yet another interesting year in British politics and it all stems from Brexit. So still lots to learn, lots to think about. And we will be with you throughout this year, giving you all that insight that you need. Uh, We're hopefully going to fit in one more podcast before Brexit actually happens. We're trying to put together a particularly special edition. And then after that, well, we'll be out of the EU and we'll be pondering all that follows. So please stay tuned, stay with us throughout the year, rate and review us, subscribe, all that sort of stuff, all the stuff that Anand appeared in the middle of that podcast to tell you to do. This has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. If you want to get in touch, You'll get me at Political Yeti. You will get UK to Changing Europe on their website, which is ukandeu.ac.uk, or their Twitter account is at ukandeu, and you can find them on Facebook as well. Do get in touch with your thoughts about what you've just heard and what awaits us in 2020. In the meantime, come back in a couple of weeks for another, hopefully, very special episode. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.